The scripture reading this morning is found in the book of Acts, chapter 20, beginning with verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus Christ, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak, And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Uh, Before we begin, officially, I just want to make a couple of quick kind of side announcements, and it's funny that we wound up singing that song, We Must Go. I had that song ringing through my mind all day yesterday as we were serving um, in a service project. Some of you got the email about that. Um, The young adults were able to go to an apartment in Elk River, and the situation there was um, a man who's been battling cancer for a number of years now passed away on Wednesday night, and they need somebody to move them out of the apartment. And we were able to go in there, and um, it, uh, it was a single father who was raising two sons, 18 and 14. And uh, right now, as it stands, the 14-year-old doesn't have uh, a home um, or anybody really that's stepping up to, to take custody over him. So that's something that we can be in prayer about, and hopefully the Lord would connect us in that situation, um, not just to clean out their apartment, which definitely needed some, some cleaning and, and some women's touch, about uh, uh, times 50, perhaps, but um, 
um, that was the that was the situation there. And I just pray that that hopefully the Lord will open up other doors to come alongside um, this 14-year-old young man, especially, and minister to him. And I just praise God for the young adults who stepped up to the plate. It's really exciting to see just the the, the work that they were doing yesterday and the joy that they had in serving um, Christ. Uh, and, and I just pray, too, that as they partook in the fast, for those of you who partook in the fast and those of you who are part of the uh, service project yesterday, that you would come away from that whole experience and that you would have tasted how sweet it is to serve Christ with your life. And that uh, doing fun things is fun and all of that, and it's good and it has its place. But there's something um, that really can't be compared to, can't compete with actually laying down your life and, and giving and serving Jesus Christ. So uh, that's my prayer for that. And, and, and also, uh, just want to commend the young adults as well uh, and point out the, the shrines that were made over there. That Those were put together by the young adults. And I just uh, praise God for that. We initially uh, kind of unveiled those at the missions gathering a week and a half ago or so. And the idea there, if you haven't had a chance to look at it, was um, uh, the idea was to make it into a shrine. And we see idolatry in Hinduism with their shrines devoted to their gods. But a Hindu who uh, sees American culture from a different perspective would look at our lifestyles and the reckless abandon that we have towards possessions and stuff and all of that, and they see idolatry clear as day in that. But to us, it's it's just uh, you know, um, it, 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 it's we're blinded to it. So those shrines are kind of there just to help us to spot and detect perhaps the way another culture would see idolatry in us. Um, so I pray that the things that are on there and the things that we'll talk about this morning here will help us to process how we might live for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us here and then we can begin. Father God, Lord, this is your work and it's your word here. And I just pray, Lord God, that you would simply use me to speak your truth and to speak your words. And at the end of all of this, Lord, I pray that we would come away from this encouraged, Lord, that this would be a life-giving, a hope-producing sermon. Lord, I don't want to lay heavy burdens on anybody here that I myself am not willing to take up. And I just pray, Father, that we would come to see our lifestyles in light of what you've called us to do. And I do just beg you, Lord God, now that you would be with me so that we could together Live as intentionally as we possibly could for the glory of your name and the exaltation of Jesus Christ in all of the earth. So come, Lord, manifest your power, manifest your grace, convict us, inspire us, I pray. And I pray that you would get glory in this service. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So, as I prayed, my goal in this sermon is really simple. It's not a complex sermon in this regard. It's to encourage all of you to live more intentionally for the sake of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the, that, that, that's the goal. And, and it, it was born out of coming out of, uh, out of India. I'll talk more about this. But coming back into the U.S., there was kind of a reverse culture shock. And, um, and, and I'll talk more about this. But anyway, one of the things I came away with was whether you're here or there, live as intentionally as you possibly can. For the gospel's sake. And perhaps this sermon might be used by God to speak to some of you 
to go and become a missionary. It might be the means that God uses to spark a passion or an interest in missions that he, in essence, calls you to missions. And that would be, that would be amazing. Uh, blessed be the name of the Lord if that was the case. But for most of you, you're not going to come away. Most of us are going to go on in our lifestyles, and most of us are going to go on living here. And at the very least, I just pray that this sermon would help us to consider how we might live as intentionally and as passionately as we can for the sake of the gospel, that we would come away with a conviction and an inspiration to use our lives as intentionally as we possibly can and to live for the exaltation of Jesus Christ in all of the earth. The Apostle Paul lived very intentionally. In Acts 20, 24, and 22 through 24, in that long section of Acts that we just read, is a really good example of that. It rings with the theme of intentionality. He says this in verse 24, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So here's the situation. Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders in Miletus, which is a town that's, um, I don't know, about 100 miles or so south of Ephesus. And he's addressing these, these brothers there, and he's on his third missionary journey at this point. And up until this point, he's written three of his letters. And, um, and uh, the, the year is A.D. 55, which means that if you do the math, Paul has been a Christian at this point for 20 years. So you can do the math here. He's been a Christian for 20 years. He's written three of his letters. And um, I just find this so amazing, just to kind of grid out Paul's life. I never really looked at it. So at the point that he's writing this, he's... He's, uh, he's been a Christian for 20 years, and Paul winds up dying in A.D. 65 or 66, which means that he has 10 years left in his life. Not that he knew that at that point, but he's got 10 years left. And if you do the math, as I said, he, um, he has written three of his letters. He's written th- he, write, he writes 13 letters total. So if you do the math there, he's got 10 letters left to write in the last remaining 10 years of his life. He's 53 years old or so at this point, depending on when he was born. So he's about 53, and depending on you know how you uh, do the life expectancy and all of that, 53 was at least, we could safely say, older in that culture than it was in this culture. So the, the, the weight of his life coming to an end is kind of you know being pressed on him more and more. And at the very least, we could say that the last section of his life didn't do a dip in fruitfulness, but it was as fruitful as the first 20 years, if not more so fruitful. It was on a steady trajectory going up. And you could make the point, too, since he wrote 10 of his 13 letters in the last 10 years of his life, that it did one of these. It went way up there. So um, either way, the first 20 years of his life probably spent doing some really necessary groundwork and making inroads for the gospel and so on and so forth. So that's kind of the situation here in Acts 20, 24. And at any rate, Paul is living to, to be as intentional as he possibly could, even at an old age. Paul knew his purpose for existing 
on the earth. And he was not going to swerve from that, either to the left or to the right at all. Look at what he says in Philippians 1, 21 through 24. He says this, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, so he wants to go. To live is Christ, to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain on in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So there's the point. He wants to go and be with Jesus Christ. But he realizes that if he is to go on in the flesh, living in the flesh, that it means fruitful labor for him. It's not. It, it, it's either or. It's one or the other. It's either, please, let me go. I want to be with Jesus. Or, if that's not the option, then option B. I will live in fruit, bearing fruit. It's fruitful labor. It's either go or fruitful labor. Period. That's it. Those are the two options for Paul. And I just think intentionality. He knows his purpose. He knows why he's on the earth. He has a job, and therefore he calculates his life so that he can complete that task. We see it clearly in Acts 20, 22, and 23. These are the two verses preceding verse 24 there. He says this, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem. So he wants to go to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So this is the level of intentionality that Paul has. Even though, even though there's afflictions, there's imprisonments that await him, I'm still going because I have a task to do and that's what I'm going to do. And then you hear this contrast. All I know is that it's going to be really hard, but, but, first word in in verse 24, I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself. Life is going to be hard if I go and serve and bear fruit, but on the contrary, on the contrast there, on the contrary, I don't account my life of any value or as precious to myself. And I think what Paul means by that is that he's trying to live his life not as if the reward of his life is here. He doesn't say, I don't think, in essence, that my life is unvaluable or I'm worthless. That's not what he's saying. It just means that even though he's assured of hardship, he, he's okay with it because he doesn't live for himself. He lives for the greater cause of testifying to the gospel. That's what Paul's all about. That's what his life is totally characterized by. And then, from that, his attitude is this. If only. And I just want that to kind of stick with us. Maybe if there's one thing that sticks with us, let it be this phrase. If only. This is Paul's desire. If only I may finish my coursework and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify of the gospel, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's the only thing he wants. Furthering the gospel is of ultimate value for Paul. And his life and his pursuit of his enjoyment and all of that is not going to keep him from fulfilling that which is of ultimate value for Paul. Of ultimate value 
is testifying to the gospel, living for the gospel. And there's nothing that's going to stand in his way to do that. It seems that the measuring stick that Paul uses to measure the value of his life is to determine how much he lives for the gospel. To the extent that Paul lives for the gospel is the extent that he finds value in his life. The more he can live for the purpose that Jesus Christ has given him to testify to the gospel, the more his life has value. The whole value system of his life is bound up in how much and to the degree that he carries out the reason that he exists on the earth, and that is to proclaim Jesus Christ. Paul's main goal is to name Christ where Christ has not yet been named. To make him known is the goal that he refuses. He refuses to be distracted from. So here's the part that I struggle with. We can think about this a little bit deeply. At, at, at first, I thought, maybe the first phrase in there, but um, the, the phrase that says, but I don't account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. At first I thought, okay, that kind of grounds the fact that if so long that he doesn't account his life of any value, that enables him to live intentionally as he can for the gospel's sake. That kind of grounds that, which means that it's necessary first to not account your life of any value, and because that's true, you can go and testify to the gospel, even if it means suffering and hardship and so on for you. And I think that's true. And then after a while, I started thinking about it, and I wondered, maybe the emphasis should be on the second part. If only I may finish my course. Last week, we talked about the resurrection and the implication that it has for ministry and life and the way that you live your life. Because you were born, because Paul was born by the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, Paul now is a new creation. He has a new purpose for living. He has a new desire, a new passion that he wants to spend his life pouring himself out for. And now, of ultimate value to him, is testifying to the gospel, living only for that. And because that is true of him, he doesn't account his life of anything value or precious to himself. The reason why he doesn't account his life as precious to himself is because of ultimate value to him is living for the purpose that Jesus Christ has called him to live for. He has a new desire, a new passion to live, and it's bound up in proclaiming Christ. So I think that the emphasis should land there. And I think Paul realizes that he will encounter opposition and difficulties, but it's okay. It's okay for him because he doesn't value the quality of his life above all things. The highest goal for him is that he would finish his course to fight the good fight, to finish the race. And he only wants to carry out the ministry that he was given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. His life only has value to the extent that he lives for the calling of Jesus Christ and serving him. So that's kind of the point that I wanted to make this morning. And that's what I want for all of us today as well. To live as intentionally as we can for the gospel. That we would have an if-only attitude about our life. In one way or another, that you would have an if-only attitude about your life. That your life would be characterized by, if only I can finish my course. And in some form or another to testify to about 
the, to the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. And I, th- I was thinking about this. When I came back from India, you see all of the needs. You see how easy it would be to plug in and meet a need. And it would, I just think it's natural that I ask myself, gee, is God calling me here? I mean, could it be that I would just go over there and serve? And I, re- I wrestled with that because you just see the needs over there and how easy it would be to fill that need. And as I was just processing and working it out with the Lord, what I got from him was, you know what? Live intentionally. Cut out distractions and live in reckless abandon for the gospel and serve Jesus Christ, whether here or there. Whether you're in St. Michael or Syria. Whether you're in Manasello or Myanmar. Whether you're in Atsigo or Oman. Whether you're in Rogers or Rwanda, whether you're in Elk River or Ethiopia, this one thing should be constant about your life, that you are living in reckless abandon for Jesus Christ and Him alone. Live as intentionally as you possibly can, and God will work out the details as to whether or not He wants you in Syria or St. Michael. Let God deal with that. You just live as intentional as you possibly can for Jesus Christ and that His grace would be known. And start working it out in your personal life. Start working it out, starting in your home and in your communities and in your work, in your neighborhoods, in your states, in your country and out into the four corners of the world. So that's kind of what I got from the Lord and that's how it has shaped this sermon here. Even at the cost of hardship and suffering, if only we may finish our course in ministry that we receive from the Lord Jesus Christ. And I understand that we're not the Apostle Paul. We're not called to go on foot throughout the Roman Empire and into Asia and so on to um, take the gospel to all of these peoples and plant churches and get imprisoned and so on and so forth. That's, uh, that may not be your calling, right? But one way or another, this is what I'm calling us to do. Find your way. Find the way that you're going to tell your story. Find the way that you are going to live your life solely and only for Jesus Christ, however that may look. And in order to do that, you must have an idea. And I just look at this as a process. And here's kind of the, the, the process. In order, for, in order for God to be known by you or to live for God, you have to kind of have an idea of how it's going to look like for you and your culture and your context. John Maxwell said this about leaders, and I think it applies to, to this idea here too. Show me a leader without a vision, and I'll show you a leader who isn't going anywhere. At best, he is traveling in circles. So that's what John Maxwell said. And I don't want us to travel around in circles and get to the point where we have to give an accounting for my life, and it's like, uh, well, I, 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 I didn't know. That's not what I want us to do. I want us to have a vision for how it's going to look for us so that we can be as intentional as we possibly can and use our life to that end. And if you don't have an idea, you have to get an idea. And if you have a somewhat kind of, kind of idea, you have to get a clear idea. That has to become more clear. And if you have a clear idea of how you're going to spend your life testifying only to the gospel and the grace of God, then what you have to do is you have to maximize efficiency and impact. All of us are in the process. And I really appreciate, uh, you know, Charlie, who right now, 
he has a pretty good idea. He's got a clear idea right now what your life is going to count for. How are you going to use your life? Preaching and teaching. And he's at the point now where I'm going to go back to school and I'm just going to be the best preacher and teacher that I can possibly be. This is what God has given me to do and I'm going to wield it so that it can have maximum impact and maximum fruitfulness. So all of us are at a place where we're, I mean, none of us have arrived. We're all on this process. Either you're trying to find out what does it look like for you, or you are maximizing its efficiency so that you can be as, as efficient and as intentional as you possibly can. And if you have no idea, um, l- let me just walk through it. It's going to get a little bit practical here. I'm just going to give you some suggestions as to how you can determine um, how it might look like for you. How you find out where you fit in the kingdom of God. And these are four criteria that I just want to lay out before you and, and use. And um, first of all, obviously, does it glorify God? Um, does it edify other people? It, uh, this is the banner over it all, and it has to, definitely has to fit into that category and has to, gra- to meet that requirement. And then second of all, by doing things, you have to do things. This is a little bit risky. But you can't know where you fit. You can't know what you're good at. You can't know what God is using you and intending you to do if you don't try things and do them. And, it ta- and the reason why I say it's a little bit risky is because, um, because that would leave yourself exposed to, to failure. I, I have a story here. I, last week I told you about how I became a Christian and the way that God worked in that. Um, this week I can tell you about how God kind of confirmed my call to ministry. And uh, it all started... I met, I met Karen, and uh, that's pretty much the end of the story, right there. <laughs> and that's, in, in, more, in one way or the other, that's kind of the end of the story. It's funny how I, I was tracing my steps here, and it was interesting to me to see how that really was kind of how God used it. Anyway, so we met towards the end of our college, and we graduated together. And we're getting to the point where it's like, okay, I think it's time to get married. But um, I kind of need a job. And... Um, I'm not going to go to ask permission to marry the daughter of a finance professor at Northwestern College without no job. <laughs> without no job. Uh, that's not going to go over so well. So I'm looking around for a job. Things weren't happening. And finally, the only thing that the Lord opened up was preschool teacher at a Christian, um, Christian preschool. So there I was. Okay, fine, I'll do it. <laughs> you know, I'll, uh, I'll get hired and, and uh, hey, I got a job now. Can I marry your daughter? And everything's going to be set, and I'll just do this for a couple of months until I kind of get myself established, and then I can find a real job, and then we'll move on with life, okay? Um, none of this kid stuff. And uh, so there I am. I'm kind of in this classroom, and I'm with... I'm, I'm co-teaching with this uh, 28-year-old. I was 23 at the time. And he was uh, more experienced than me. He's done this before. I've never taught kids before, ever. I didn't have an education in this. That wasn't what I went to school for. Um, so there I am in the classroom with all these three, four, five, six-year-olds running around. And I have, I have no idea what I'm doing in there. And he kind of had an idea. And, and, and part of it, he was an unbeliever, too. It's important to understand. He's an unbeliever, and finally he comes up to me. Every day there's a Bible lesson that needs to be taught to the children. And he realizes that I am, um, you know, Christian, that I studied at Northwestern College, and that I have a Bible degree and all of that. And um, he comes up to me and he says, Do you want to take over the Bible teaching part of the class? 
Now, here's what I didn't say. I didn't say, mm, let me pray about it. Uh, I wonder if God would want me to teach the Bible. Since I have a passion for the Bible, I want other people to understand it. You're an unbeliever. I didn't say, let me pray about it. I said, yes, I will do that. That's an open door. I have no, wonder, I have no idea. I have no experience whatsoever teaching these little kids, but I did it. And I tried. And I really was bad at it, to be honest. I was bad. I'm sure the women that were coming in and out and they have their degrees and they have their experience are like, who is this guy? I mean, who, who hired him? Somebody's got to get him out of here. I'm surprised it didn't happen. I really am. I had no idea. I didn't have a curriculum to go off of. I just did my best with what I had. But I will say this. It mattered to me that I got good at it. There are some things that you're going to try and you don't care. You don't care if you're no good. I threw a pot one time. Uh, that's pottery talk. I was in college as well. I think, Karen, you were, uh, we were all together. Um, anyway, we were there, and you have to get the pot centered, right? So you're spinning this thing, and the way that you know that it's centered, if it, if it smoothly goes around your hand without any bumping, I could not get to that point where I got it centered. So I couldn't do anything. And I was like, you know what? I stink at this, and I don't care. I'm no good at pottery, and I don't care. And there are some things about you that you're not going to care if you're bad at or not. But when it comes to Bible teaching, I did care about that. I cared, and I said, I will get better at this. I will get the hang of it because I know I can do it. Deep down, I strove and I put all of my resources and energy into being a good Bible teacher. And finally, I got the hang of it, and I enjoyed it. If you don't enjoy something, God may not be calling you to, to it. You should be filled with joy. It should be something that you enjoy doing. That's another criteria. And then last of all, community. This is what I mean by community. Do other people see that as a gift in you? I think I'm a great Bible teacher, but everybody else thinks I stink. That might not be a good indication, right? But there were affirmations from the parents. They were saying, you know, he's talking about what you learned, what he learned. He, He loves coming to your class and so on and so forth. And not to boast or brag or anything like that, but when you're good at something, when you are using your God-given talents, you're going to have enjoyment and other people will be blessed. And when they tell you that, hey, we're blessed when you teach, or we're blessed when you do this, or we're blessed when you do that, that's an indication, hey, that's how you can use your life to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. It might be hospitality. You might have the gift of hospitality, or maybe you don't have the gift of hospitality. You can't decipher or get straight the difference between baking soda and baking powder. (laughs) And, you know, if you mix those two up, I think from what I've experienced, it doesn't go so good. I know that uh, it's kind of an awkward moment there when um, you can, (laughs) if 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 that's the situation, I know that it's funny, it happened to my mom. I don't know if she has the gift of hospitality, to be quite honest. Is that thunder or is that the uh, speaker there? My mom gets really, really, really worked up to the point where she would accidentally mix some ingredients. And uh, I knew that it was time. It was time when, uh, when, when people were coming over outside of the family, they would come over and it was kind of, it was kind of a nerve-wracking time. And when, when people came over, you could kind of feel the tension. That's not the gift of hospitality exactly. On the, on the other side, if you have a joy in cooking and preparing food for other people, and that gives you joy, and you love it when they come over. They feel like you're there at home when you're at their house. Many of you in this church have that gift. And I just praise God for the fact that we have a hospitable church. And 
If that's your gift, then find a way to maximize that. Find a way to utilize that for the glory of God. It might be that you find a way to creatively get your neighbors and everybody in your block, in your house, and just minister to them. Cook them a meal and let them enjoy the the fellowship that they can have inside the house. That is the way that I would suggest that you determine how you fit in the kingdom of heaven. That's how you can determine your skills, your abilities. There's thousands of ways. There's thousands of ways to do it. And uh, second of all, this is another thing that we have to do to make sure that we um, that uh, we can live as intentionally as we can. And it's eliminating barriers. We have to eliminate barriers that keep us from living intentionally for the gospel's sake. There's thousands of barriers that come into our way. And I could spend all kinds of time here talking about barriers that hinder us from living as intentionally as we possibly can. But... Coming away from India again, there was one that kind of took the, 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 the cake in that regard, and it was stuff. That's the phrase I want to, that's the phrase I want to, to, to have you guys go away with. There was a wonderful sense of kind of simplicity that the, that the Indian people were blessed with. They have enough, but not too much. And coming home to America, I kind of had reverse culture shock where it hit me. I didn't even expect it. But I found myself kind of weighed down as I came back into our culture. And I thought about my lifestyle and I thought about my house that is just totally brimming and bursting at the seams with stuff. And, and, and that's what I'm talking about here. And it's not just material possessions either. I don't want you to hear me say it's just material possessions. It's... It's, not, it's, it's, it's anything. It could be activities. It could be anything that keeps you from being as intentional, that essentially, that, that essentially overwhelms you to the point where you have so much stuff to care for that you have to start building bigger barns. That's what Jesus talked about in Luke 12. I have so many possessions. And, and he said that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions because the man who has that has to start building bigger barns. And when you have to start building bigger barns that are nice enough to fit all the nice stuff that you have in there, it consumes your life. And it just kind of takes over. And you can't think about living for the gospel's sake and doing missions and all of that because I've got to build barns. I've got to, I've got to keep them up. I've got to tear down the old ones and build up new ones. And it just, it, it, it's so time consuming. And, and that's what I want us to understand here. And in this way, we don't own our possessions as much as our possessions own us. They tell us how we're going to live. They dictate to us how we're going to spend our time. It's almost like our possessions are coming to us and saying, you have to take good care of me, you know. You have to, you have to make sure that I have a good place in the house. You have to make sure that that you don't break me, that you take really good care of me, and you have to organize me and all of that. And if, it ever, it, if you really want to enjoy me, whatever it is, you have to go out and get the matching set. And not just the matching set, but you have to get all of the other little pieces that go along with it. So in order to, to really make good on this, you've you got to have to you get all the bits and pieces and all of that. And then, if you get bored with me, you have to make sure that you, know, you put me away in a nice place. You can't just throw me away. 
you got to go out and buy a bin, a storage bin, and put it in the closet. And I don't want to just be in any old closet. I don't want to be in a dusty, clammy basement. I want to be in finished storage space. That's where I want to be. you got to finish out the storage space because we can't be putting something of my caliber in a, in a, in a basement like that. And, and, and after all, you paid good money for me. You have to take good care of me now. Right? And you have to hang on to me. You can't get rid of me because, who knows, two years down the road, there might be a rainy day, and you might get the urge to play with me for 15 minutes, and you'll be really happy that you kept, you hung on to me. And in that way, it's like our stuff kind of dictates and takes over our lifestyle. And it makes it really hard to be as intentional as we possibly can be to live for the gospel's sake. And I just pray that... Um, Overall, that we would have a shift in attitude. And this isn't the effect that I want to have on this sermon. I don't want you all to go home and throw everything away. Get rid of it all. That's not the effect that I want this sermon to have. I simply want us to think more and more about what it is that we're striving for. And as we build the mentality of saying, this is what we're going to live for above all things, then over a period of time, we can start to weed things out and say, you know what, this doesn't serve our good. Out. This doesn't serve our good. Out. And we start to develop a different mentality and attitude as to what kinds of things we take in. We have a different policy for accumulating things. And, you know, as Americans, it's tough, isn't it? It's so easy to accumulate stuff. It doesn't even cost a lot of money. You can get a bunch of stuff, and most of it is probably garbage. But anyway, we got to build barns to take care of it now, and it just consumes us. And, and I just pray that we would have a different attitude. And over time, we'd start to be really disciplined about the kind of stuff that we take in so that we're not consumed and owned by our stuff, but that we dictate. We sit in the driver's seat of the things that we have. And we say, you know what? You are only around. I'm talking to the possession or the thing or the activity right now. You are only around to the extent that you are helping me enjoy Jesus more. You're only around to the extent that you're furthering my ability to serve Jesus and maximize my potential and fruitfulness. And to the extent that you don't serve that anymore, you're gone. You're out. In the garbage or off to goodwill or whatever it might be. You know, and it's going to make a last dying plea at you. No, don't you want me? I flash up and I light and I do cool things. Gone! That's the kind of attitude that we have to have because we don't want to be consumed with stuff. I love that scene in The Lord of the Rings. Um, I only saw the third one. Some friends were like, oh yeah, you should watch it. We'll just fill you in as you go along. It didn't, it didn't happen. As, as we were going along, he's like, yeah, there's really too much going on here. Just watch it. Anyway, there was a scene where um, the guy, I don't even know the names or anything like this. This was like four or five years ago. But he's taking this necklace with the, it's kind of like the omen, right? And it symbolizes sin, and it brings all kinds of bad, you know, uh, bad luck to the people that it affects and so on. And he's on this voyage to take it to the edge of the, this cliff with the, with the lava pit on the, on the edge, and he's going to throw it over. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, oh, man, I must be saying something really funny here. But um, anyway, he's going to throw it over the edge, and... As soon as he gets to the edge, you, you feel this, this feeling of relief. Oh, finally, they're going to get rid of it. And then he looks at it, right? 
I don't know if you guys remember this scene, if you guys saw it, but he looks at the thing, and he's like, hmm, and he starts to get enamored with it. Oh, I can't possibly get rid of you. Uh, he starts to fall in love with it. It flashes, it beams, or whatever, and it's almost like he's falling under the spell of this necklace thing. And, and that's kind of how it is for us with Americans. It's like we have these things that consume us. They don't necessarily serve our good, but we want to throw them over, and we just can't. We just can't let go of it. Because, it, oh, it's valuable. Oh, it, 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 you know, it brought me so much joy, or whatever it might be. And we see idolatry so clearly in the Hindu culture, for instance, right? Because they identify all of the shrines to a god. That, that, that's how they do it. And, and it's really obvious to them that, that, that it's idolatrous, or it's, it's obvious to us that it's idolatrous. However, um, they see idolatry in us in a way that we would never even see it, or we would never even perceive it. Our reckless abandon to live for possessions and more and so on and so forth, and the ways that we just use our lives essentially to make our life most enjoyable is really clear to them that that's just idolatry. Anything that competes in our hearts and that competes with our affections for Jesus Christ has become, has risen to the level of idolatry. And anything that you live your life for, essentially to maintain, it, it, essentially you're bowing down your life to it and that be, it raises to the level of an idol. And we don't see it as clearly, but another culture would look at that and say, wow, look it, they're on a reckless abandon towards this. So I just want us to beware the fact that we live in that kind of a culture and that's something we have to be uh, open to and aware of. Uh, furthermore, the children in India, the children in India, um, and this is why I really stress, let's not send them a bunch of stuff. Let's not send them money and, and, and toys and all those that good stuff because realistically, they don't need it. And in fact, in some ways, it might hinder them. And that's what I came away thinking. Man, my kids, I came back into my house and I thought, my children have about 20 times more toys between the two of them. Well, now Ben is uh, our third, but he really doesn't have any toys. But between our two daughters, they have about 20 times more toys than the 21 children over there do. And you don't hear the complaining. You don't hear the, I'm bored. There's nothing to do, and so on and so forth. And there's lots of obstacles, lots of obstacles that having a lot of stuff actually creates. Jesus has less in this way. He has less to compete with for their affections. Jesus has a lot to go up against. The Bible seems boring to us in a lot of ways because it doesn't light up, it doesn't flash, it doesn't, you know, beep and so on and so forth. And, oh, well, that's cool, but it's not as cool as this. That's kind of the attitude that we have, and this is what we're up against. And in that way, they're actually blessed to some extent to have less. They actually have just what they need and no more. And that's really good. And that's what the shrines are about there too. And this whole thing, I explained that before. And this is the last thing in this regard that I want to, that I want to mention in this regard. And this is to keep it from becoming legalistic. I don't want this to become legalistic, but hope giving. And this is the way that I see it becoming hope giving. Jesus Christ is the true God, and therefore, there's nothing that we essentially have to part with that isn't good for us, or that is the best thing for us. Um, in, this, in, in this situation, um, Jesus being the true God, he's the God that actually is satisfying. We don't so much serve him as much as he serves us in return. The idols that we serve 
promise us joy, and for a season they give us joy, but in the end they suck us dry. That's the nature of false gods. They demand everything, and they give nothing in return. They suck us dry. But Jesus Christ is the God who demands our whole life that we live fully for him. But he is gracious, and he actually serves us in the end. The, 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 the story of the uh, feeding the 5,000 is an example of this. We see that the disciples feed the, and minister to the crowds, right? And they are wondering, man, we don't have enough to go around. And Jesus multiplies it, and in the end, they have a return. There's baskets left over. There's leftover when you serve Jesus Christ. There's a reward. There's a return that's life-giving and life-producing when you lay it down and live for Jesus Christ. And in this story here, Mark 10, 28 through 30, Peter began to say to him, um, this is in the context of the rich young ruler. He goes away and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you heard the commandments, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, well, there's one thing you lack. Go and sell all that you have and sell to the poor. And he went away sad. His heart was sad because he had a lot of possessions. He didn't want to part with it. And then he says, you know, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Peter jumps on the opportunity. Hey, Jesus, we left everything for you. This is what he says. Jesus, or uh, I'm sorry, Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. <laughs> Pat me on the back. Jesus said, I say to you, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. What Jesus is saying here, he stops Peter dead in his tracks. He says, Peter, Peter, you've misunderstood you have not sacrificed anything that isn't returning a hundredfold for your good. There is nothing that you got rid of. There's nothing that I asked you to lay down that actually isn't helping you in the long run. I am the true joy giver. I am truly the one who satisfies. And Jesus says, essentially, when he says, go sell all that you have, is he's looking out for his good. He wants to be served undistractedly, and he's getting rid of anything that would compete so that he might serve Jesus Christ fully. And in that, we are satisfied. The true satisfaction of life comes by reckless abandon, living for Jesus Christ and him alone. We can have true satisfaction. We can find real joy in our life, not by the abundance of our possessions or the things that make life fun and happy and all of that, but there's a deeper, more satisfying joy, and that is living for Jesus Christ and Him alone. So when Jesus says, go, give it up, lay down your life, and then you will find it. He's looking out for your good. And there's a joy element there. So if you do get rid of anything, or if you do make changes in your lifestyle, make it so that you will find the soul-satisfying joy of serving Jesus Christ unhinderedly, undistractedly. That's what I want to get at here. There's a couple of other, there's a couple of other things before we close here, as I bring this to a close, that I want to talk about. And I want to address this at the young people. Okay? So, young people, if you haven't been listening to me right now, uh, 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 give me your attention here just for a little bit. 
A um, couple of things, college and marriage. I just wanted to, to talk about that just really briefly. And uh, maybe parents in here are not going to like what I have to say here. But let me, let, me, let me just open up some avenues of thinking along this line. It may be that most of you will graduate from high school and go to college and get education and get a job and so on and so forth. And that's what you should do. That's right. But that may not be the only path to take. That's all I want to say here. That may not be the only path to take. And I would just want to open up the door of your thinking to say, hey, maybe I may not know exactly what I want to pursue when I'm done with college or high school. And perhaps I would go and do ministry or something like that. Or perhaps maybe go to some other type of ministry and serve for a year or two. And in that way, if I'm unsure, I can come back and pursue college with a direction. And not just go because this is what we do. Um, so that, that, that's what I want to say. It's very serving. It's really serving to think about the fact that you could go to college with a clear direction of what you want to do. Perhaps you would spend a couple of years outside of high school working and realizing, I want to do construction. I don't need to go to a four-year university. I can go get training, learn how to do construction, and go off and serve the Lord doing that. And, and that's, that's all I'm saying here. Let's just build another category in our mind. And I think about Alex, who doesn't have a four-year degree, and she's bearing way more fruit. She's bearing way more fruit than her credentials are allowing her to. By American standards, she shouldn't be bearing as much fruit as, as she is. But she's bearing fruit off the charts, and it's just because she's just led by the Holy Spirit, and she's following Christ obediently. So I just want to open that up that option, uh, that, that opportunity here to say, hey, maybe there's some wiggle room here in terms of how I would pursue schooling and so on. And as I said, most of you are going to follow through, graduate from high school, go to college, and that's what you should do. That's the right path of direction. And I bless that, and I don't want to, I don't want to stand in the way and say, no, no, don't do that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, let's just think about another possibility. I think about the fact that I hear numbers about ministers who are going into ministry later on in life. And that's exciting to me. They're quitting their jobs, and they've got families, and they're going to seminary because they have a call to ministry. And that's exciting to me for this reason. They have a passion to do this. They're not just, eh, I think I, I guess I want to go to seminary and... And then I'm done, and, um, well, if they were asked, why are you a pastor? Well, I went to seminary, and I have an MDiv, and um, I'm a pretty good public speaker. That's no reason to be a pastor. And there's a, there's a danger in that. There's a danger in going without a real clear direction, without having any kind of experience, because really, uh, well, I'm not going to get into that, without having that kind of experience and really having a direction, this is what I want to do, and I'm going to pursue it, there's that clear-cut direction, and I'm excited to hear that there are older men that are pursuing ministry later on in their life because they're not going to seminary to maybe try something. They're going there because this is what I want to do, and they're totally tunnel-focused on that, and that's exciting to me. So again, it's a both-and. It's a both-and. And I just want to... Sometimes we have rigid cultural values and ideals that say, oh, if you don't go to college, you're really going to be nothing. And, and sometimes some of you might buy into that, and I just want to... Uh, save anybody from, from that if that's the situation. And it could be potentially 
a, a distraction. It, it may not be a distraction. It may be necessary. It's necessary to get training and all of that. So um, that's just something to, to consider. And some of you, marriage. Um, perhaps, perhaps marriage is not something, and I, and I just want all of us to hear this, especially in the context of glory of Christ, where we, we really promote husband, wife, we promote the home so much. And I just want to say, that's going to be about, you know, whatever, 95% true for most people, but singleness, and I just want this to come out from the pulpit, that singleness is a gift of God, if that is his intention for somebody's life. Singleness could be a gift of God. It could be a way to maximize ministry. And the Apostle Paul, even in a missionary context, he said, it's better to remain single for the purpose of mission. Now, there's a both and again. There's both sides of the coin. In many ways, ministry is really furthered by having a spouse and having children. There's no doubt about it. There's many ways that ministry is furthered in that way. But there are some people who might have the gift of, of singleness. And if, and if so, then we're open to that. And, and, uh, and all I'm saying here is that you would consider and pray that God would ask, or, or that God would show you, um, that you'd be open to the idea that per, per, perhaps, maybe, I would be single. And again, what I'm trying to do is just to save us from the cultural, kind of the norms. It's like, I go to high school, go to college, find a spouse, get married, have 2.5 kids. That may probably be the, the path for you, but singleness might be a gift of God that he has blessed you with. And for that, it could be a great way to unleash you for the ministry that God has called you to do in the lifestyle that he has given you to live. So in conclusion, the greatest goal of this message was just to challenge us to live as intentionally as we possibly can for the sake of the gospel. That's what it is. May we have an if-only attitude. If only we can finish our course. If only we can complete the ministry that God has given to us. If only we can testify to the gospel of the grace of God. May that be what we live for. And may we find joy and satisfaction in that and in that alone, in serving Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let me pray for us. Father, I realize that I'm treading on thin ice. And I just pray, Father, that that we just take this. I just pray that we would consider what I'm saying here. And and I just pray, Father, that you would please just speak to us and, and, and help us, Lord God, to find the soul-giving satisfaction of living for you and you alone. Lord, I just pray that you would please um, undo any kind of barriers or hinder, hindrances that we have, that we've put up, that keep us from maximizing our fruitfulness and our ministry potential. So, Lord, may we live for you. And I pray, God, that you would give us grace now and that you would go with us and that we would find our solace in your presence. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.